Welcome to Changing Places, the podcast that believes places are powerful agents of positive social transformation. Each episode, Dean Keith Diaz-Moore from the University of Utah's College of Architecture and Planning will take you behind the teaching, research, and practice at the leading edge of innovation occurring in our college. Through informal conversations, you will learn the emerging issues, why you should care, and what you can do about them to change our world for the better. Welcome to Changing Places, a periodic podcast focused on how the places we create are agents for transformative social change. I am your host, Keith Diaz-Moore. Today we're joined by Sarah Canham, Associate Professor of Social Work and City and Metropolitan Planning at the University of Utah. Dr. Canham also is Associate Director of the Health Interprofessional Education Program here at the U. Sarah is a fellow of the Gerontological Society of America, an international advocate for housing justice for older adults, and a researcher currently studying the rise in homelessness among older adults both in the United States and in Canada. This phenomenon of homelessness has only increased with the economic impacts of COVID-19 and will likely spike as moratoria on evictions expire later this year. Sadly, data indicates that while about half of older persons who are homeless have likely been experiencing chronic homelessness during their life, about half also become homeless for the first time as an older person. Dr. Canham's work could not be more timely, and we are fortunate to have her here with us today. Sarah, welcome. Thank you, Dean Diaz-Moore, for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So this issue of homelessness among older adults, I believe, is, is one that is no doubt flying under the radar. Uh, for instance, I think most listeners would be surprised that somewhere between a quarter to a third of homeless shelter beds are occupied by older adults in both the United States and Canada. I'm wondering if you could take a minute or two and describe the scope and nature of the issue as, as you would frame it. Of course. So when we talk about homelessness among older adults, we're actually talking about a number of ways in which people are housing insecure. There is not one single way in which someone can be considered homeless. So for instance, homelessness includes those who are at risk of homelessness, as well as individuals who are staying in an emergency shelter or who lack a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. And in the U.S., there are also classifications of homelessness for, for instance, unaccompanied youth, families with children, and uh, individuals and families who are fleeing or attempting to flee violence. So when we look at the, the research and policy related to older adults who are experiencing homelessness, many are surprised to learn that this includes people who are as young as 50 years old. So now you might be thinking, but wait, 50 is young. Why are we using this age? And, and so for one, uh, experiences of poor mental and physical health can accelerate the aging process so that the, the medical age of people who are experiencing homelessness really exceeds their, their biological age. Right, right. So among older adults experiencing homelessness, you see these geriatric conditions in individuals who are 10 to 20 years younger than their health counterparts. And as you mentioned, this trend in, in the aging of the homeless population has been occurring over the last 30 years or so as the average age of single adults has increased. So what, what's particularly troubling is this the, the continued expected growth of older adults mm -hmm. uh, over the next decade. And this is really, uh, we see the, this forecasting work being done by Dennis Polk, 
Colhane and his colleagues out of the University of Pennsylvania, really forecasting uh, that that it's the younger baby boomers who are who are disproportionately likely to experience homelessness. Uh, so, so in addition to this cohort effect that that research talks about. Uh, that has impacted that the younger baby boomers. There is also a significant body of literature that identifies the devastating consequences of discriminatory and predatory housing practices on black and native populations. Ah, yes. Interesting. With this growth that's happened, projected growth to happen, it appears as though maybe our safety, social safety net isn't working as, as well as it could. You know, I dabble a little bit in, in uh, environments for older persons. And so I understand that our, our support services may not always connect with shelter providers. Uh, long-term care often has ex- excess complexity in its own right, uh, let alone with the complexities of, of homelessness associated with it. And the basic disconnect between you know, immediate need, no doubt these individuals have, and the the time of bureaucracy, right, that our, that our systems need to, to work through themselves. What's your diagnosis of, of the problem at hand? That's a, that's a really interesting question because this is not something that most people think about. While we can all relate to having to navigate services and the healthcare system, most of us don't understand the experience of trying to navigate these very complicated systems while simultaneously having to worry about where we're going to sleep at night or whether we will be safe while we're sleeping. And, and it's not even taking into account the impact that poor sleep has on our ability to function, including finding our next meal or figuring out how to get to the places we need to go to if we don't have a car or don't have access to affordable transit. And then for older adults, you can, in most cases, add on the challenges associated with defining physical health or mental health, the increased costs of housing that we see uh, amidst the stagnant income assistance, limited opportunities for employment or even training in later life. Right. And, and in addition, older adults have these, these shrinking social networks, so they're more reliant on formal social supports to help them navigate these complex systems and mm-hmm. even understand how to overcome the barriers to get into housing that can meet their needs. And, and finally, there are also issues at this the societal level, really, related to ageism, and, and we see this a lot in, in the work you do, too, I'm sure, with long-term care, is the, the disinterest that our society affords to older adults, and not just the needs of older adults to survive, to merely get by, but really the need to thrive. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do as a society to really recenter our priorities around persons of all ages. You are absolutely correct on that. So one key trans- transition point that seems to happen with older adults that are that are homeless that perhaps you know some of the some of the conditions associated with it they might experience something like a a, a drug overdose or perhaps their diabetes is not being uh, maintained right or monitored and so they might have an insulin shock or something like that but something might take them into the acute care health system right the hospital setting um, and then afterwards they go back into a shelter or or resuming life uh, on the street and you've been studying something called medical respite. And whether it's the care culture or or the architectural design of such a facility, a recurring phrase that's talked about in this area of medical respite seems to be to uh, to have them operate through a trauma informed lens. What, what to you does this mean? And and specifically for our listeners, what might this trauma informed lens mean for for the areas of design and planning? 
Right. So to provide a little more context here as well, the medical respite programs are providing these post-acute medical care for, for individuals who are experiencing homelessness. So these can be locations that are at a single site or even scattered site uh, intervention locations. And for individuals who, who still are quite sick and frail, and so they might require wound care or ongoing IV therapy. Uh, and they're, they're not quite sick enough or frail enough for the hospitals to keep them and justify them in a, in a patient's hospital bed. And so the patient is ultimately discharged. And so in our research on medical respite, we've asked people experiencing homelessness as well as their health and, and, and shelter providers what the ideal components of medical respite programs are. And so among the other attributes, what our study participants have described to us is this need for what, you know, that this trauma-informed lens so that older patients feel a sense of cultural safety and inclusion. And these trauma-informed approaches are really useful in this context as it acknowledges the, the lasting impact that trauma has on an individual. And this could be trauma that has led someone to homelessness, but this could also be trauma that has been the result of experiencing homelessness on an individual's health, their well-being, their identity, their relationships, and so forth. And so with this trauma-informed lens, the, the services and resources that are designed for people experiencing homelessness should meet people where they're at in their journey, which can take a variety of forms, and, and it's an extremely individual process. So rather than looking at identifying quote, what's wrong with someone, we can ask the question of what happened to someone and really begin right. building relationships to understand how to best support individuals with these principles of safety, choice, uh, collaboration, trustworthiness, and empowerment. And, and thinking about it in the context of architecture and planning, trauma-informed policies would help to prioritize the response to issues that are associated with those underlying stressors that individuals have and really look to find ways in which we can promote an individual's sense of control as well as help empower individuals or provide individualized pathways to recovery. So in our research, what participants have highlighted is the need for, for instance, medical respite staff to have people skills or to be compassionate or caring and engaged. Mm -hmm. And I think these attributes can be promoted within the profession of architecture and planning as we design, as we build and plan for communities and homes for this increasingly diverse population. Uh, this should be done in ways that promote a sense of safety, dignity, empowerment, and well-being for, for all applicants. So if I can build off that just for a moment, how, so how common are these medical respite um, facilities? In the United States, there's um, the, the National Healthcare for the Homeless. They uh, maintain a list, and so you can find that list quite easily online. And they, they have a list of about 200 currently in, in the state of Utah. There's only one available, in none that are dedicated specifically for older adults, which is the, the research I've done on how we can design and plan for, for older adults specific medical respites. Uh, in, in Vancouver, where I, where I was previously, uh, there also were no older adult specific medical respites uh, and, and no dedicated medical respite, though there were initial conversations to, to have some developed. So, so really good evidence base for the efficacy and the cost savings of these programs, uh, but not often enough to meet the needs. Right. For, so, for people in community. so this is really an, an emerging need, an emerging place type uh, that, that's that's likely to become more prevalent over the well the next mm -hmm. decade or however long you want to say. 
Is that fair mm-hmm. to say? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I'd say so. We need more. Let's turn to something that some of our, our, our Salt Lake listeners might be aware of. Um, one specific intervention regarding homelessness is is something that's referred to as housing first. And that approach has been taken in both Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, which, as you said, you were previously, and, and as we're talking about Salt Lake City as well. So could you define housing first and perhaps what it does well? And how does it fall short in meeting the needs of homeless older persons? Great. So Housing First is broadly considered and and regarded as this evidence-based model that has been based on a very very good deal of of research, including a a five-year randomized control trial in five different cities across Canada. And and Housing First, what it does is it focuses on the provision of permanent and independent housing that has wraparound support services attached to meet an individual's needs, sort of meet an individual where they're at. And so these support services are really recognized as essential for Housing First to be successful and support individuals to stay housed. And so you can imagine, for instance, that staying housed uh, and indoors might be difficult for individuals who have experienced chronic, chronic homelessness. So paying bills on time, even using computers uh, and completing government forms, not right. to mention supporting and cooking high-cost and healthy foods, uh, or maintaining a clean home, all of this can be challenging for many people. And so it's really those significant supports that are needed to help individuals become self-sufficient, relearn life skills, uh, so that they can remain housed and to do so independently. So some of the key components of Housing First, and they have a number of principles, uh, are to provide consumer choice as well as immediate access to housing without any prerequisites. So as compared to the former model, which required people to maintain sobriety in order to access housing, Housing First really takes away that prerequisite and says we're going to give you Housing First and give you a stable location from which you can then approach your goals and work on uh, your individualized needs. I see. And so as in much of this research, in order for Housing First to be successful and to sufficiently support the participants, there is a need for adequate housing. However, as is increasingly the case in Salt Lake and has definitely been a significant issue for a number of years in Vancouver, there's a significant lack of housing options for older adults. And this becomes even more problematic as we look to have a variety of housing types for older adults, whether it's, you know, subsidized independent housing units that are accessible for people who use wheelchairs or Mm -hmm. publicly funded long-term care beds for older adults who have complex histories of housing insecurity. These, there's there's a wide variety of need and, and a lot of gaps along along that continuum, and and as a result of this lack of available affordable housing, the housing first principles of consumer choice that I spoke about, as well as that immediate access to housing, become quite impossible to achieve. Uh, and other ways that we found housing first to be not a great model for older adults in Vancouver, that is, is one that older adults are required to relocate oftentimes to new communities where right. the housing is affordable. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that causes a loss of social connection, it leads to isolation, rather than that, that community integration piece that Housing First really promotes. And then an additional challenge of Housing First is the requirement uh, and that the clients meet certain criteria to be eligible for Housing First. So to be chronically or episodically homeless prior to receiving Housing First, which really leaves a lot of older adults uh, out of, of 
the available program funding for those specifically who are newly homeless or even those who are precariously housed and they, they miss out on those federally funded um, housing first dollars. Um, but I, I do want to say this there's not to say that housing first is not an excellent model because it is uh, for those who for many people who have experienced chronic homelessness as well as individuals who require more intensive mental health and substance use reports. Uh, supports is, is really a, a key intervention. There does remain a significant and growing proportion of our population who needs preventative options or this less intensive, though immediate supports for their self-sufficiency. Right, right. One phrase you just threw in there, and I, and I think you were mentioning some of the uh, examples of this when we first started, but you said precariously housed, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? How, give some pictures of us of what that might look like. So a really great example of this, the term that a lot of people throw around would be couch surfing. So there are people who, for instance, don't want to access an emergency shelter when they, let's say you you become evicted uh, and you're looking for somewhere to stay, you can't afford anything. So your your friend or someone in your family will let you stay on their couch for a little while, uh, but then you kind of oversee your welcome, if you will, and then you need to go to the, the next person in your social work social network and so on and so forth. And so it's it's those people who are at risk for housing or maybe they are paycheck to paycheck trying to meet their their rental rental payments. And you know, as we saw in COVID, as you as you mentioned at the outset, with the lifting of the moratoria on on evictions, we're gonna see those are the precariously housed people we're talking about who how can we prevent them from ever entering into the homeless system by helping them maintain their housing and remove that precarious element from their from their housing situation. Thank you. That That's really uh, informative. And, and I think we all probably can pa- a picture, you know, we're fortunate in that uh, where, where you've been and where you are and, and the, the communities are really interested in trying to address the homeless issue, both in Vancouver and in Salt Lake City. And I'm wondering, what are the possibilities for, you know, those governmental agencies to to learn from one another? And specifically, and perhaps I can say a little selfishly, I'll say, you know, how could Salt Lake become a leader in meeting mm-hmm. the needs of homeless older adults? Mm-hmm. That is the, this is the million dollar question. Uh, and, and so while the pathway to get there seems very hard, uh, it may be very hard, the answer is really simple. The answer is housing. Uh, the number one way in which Salt Lake or any other region for that matter can become a leader in meeting the needs of older adults who are homeless is to ensure that there is a balanced supply of homes. So housing that is affordable for residents of different income levels. When we are planning specifically for older adults, we also need to make sure that there's a supply of accessible housing. So housing that has been intentionally designed to accommodate people of varying abilities, including wheelchair users. I've seen a lot in Vancouver, they have transit-oriented development. It's one form of development which I think would serve uh, Salt Lake residents extremely well, not only because it would support better support people who are experiencing homelessness, but because we also need to cut down on our emissions in the quality of our air uh, and increase the, improve the quality of our air. So in this form of development, you have these dense housing built within walking distance public transit. So there are these opportunities for businesses to be built into this form 
Another uh, planning mechanism that, that Vancouver has benefited from, which I think could serve Salt Lake quite well, are called community amenity contributions. And so these are in-kind or cash, cash contributions that are provided by the developer of properties to um, to the community, essentially. So the, the city council will grant development rights through, through a rezoning process. So for instance, when a property developer wants to build a condo development that has uh, in higher density than what it's currently zoned for, and they need to go through the rezoning process, they could commit uh, to building a community amenity. So in many cases in Vancouver, they've, they've built affordable housing projects through this planning mechanism, and in other cases, the community amenity might include a park or a child care facility mm-hmm, or cultural mm-hmm. spaces. So I think there's some interesting <clears throat> planning mechanisms and planning levers we could look at there. And then one last thing I do want to mention is that um, the approach of how we go about, <clears throat> excuse me, managing people who are homeless is, is quite different in Salt Lake as, as compared to Vancouver. So Vancouver is perhaps the first city in North America to implement a harm reduction program okay. for IV drug users, which this supports individuals who are substance users by, again, using that trauma-informed lens, meeting them where they are at in their recovery journey, and really supporting their work on setting their individualized goals. So nothing like this, as far as I've seen, exists yet in Salt Lake. And, and really, in stark contrast, what I've heard and heard about and observed has been what I consider more of like the criminalization of poverty. And so people who are unable to afford a home or unable to afford transit, but for instance, they need to get outside of the free fare zone, they right. are at an increased risk for being ticketed or receiving a citation. So now if this citation isn't paid, they're issued a warrant, and then that person can be arrested. So we're arresting people who have nowhere to go or nowhere to get a job so that they can afford somewhere to go. Right. Our tax dollars are really paying for this treatment of people, like our tax dollars are paying for this treatment uh, for people who can't afford transit and can't afford a home. And so really the downstream effects of this criminalizing these people is that it becomes more difficult for individuals to qualify for housing uh, and income assistance. We are actually creating these barriers to getting people into housing by putting this mark, this blemish on their record, essentially by criminalizing poverty. And so that approach really requires, I think, some deep thinking and shift in our approach based on something that's more of a harm reduction approach rather than than this criminalization uh, approach. Sarah, you've given us a whole bunch to think about today. One last question as we wrap up. This is a question I ask uh, all of our guests. As you know, our college espouses uh, an ethic of care uh, to underlie our professional education in architecture, design, and planning. So let me ask you, why, why do you care about this issue and why do you think others should care about this growing phenomenon of homelessness among our oldest citizens? Well, there are a whole host of reasons why someone might care, and, and it's actually surprising to me that more people aren't up in arms about the ways that in which we should be treating those who are experiencing homelessness or even housing insecurity. And and I say this because the host of reasons are both altruistic. You could be an altruistic individual. You could also be quite selfish, um, and that would that would be fine too. You would still have a reason to care. Um, it's really in everyone's best interest to be allocating more funding and support to the housing and supports for older adults. So, for instance, some people might care because they feel that housing and health care is a right to which everyone is entitled. And I'm not talking about the right to high-end luxury housing, but really the right to basic 
living situation in mm-hmm. which people can feel safe and stable, from which they can navigate their lives and, and, and live as self-sufficiently as and independently as possible. Increasingly, some people might care because they themselves have experienced homelessness or eviction or the threat of an eviction or know that one day they themselves will be older, as hopefully we all will be, and perhaps themselves in need of government assistance or access to affordable housing, or perhaps that they have family or friends who are aging and increasingly in need. And and if for no other reason, some might care because it really impacts the bottom line, such that the costs of homelessness are much greater than the costs of supportive housing. And the research uh, bears out this information too. The public dollars that are spent on emergency medical uh, systems and our policing mm-hmm. efforts far outweigh the money that is needed to support people to live in in supportive housing units. So, so homelessness is expensive, and it's really in everyone's best interest to find these these sustainable solutions to housing. That makes perfect sense, Sarah. Thank you for caring about the topic. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, this has really been utterly fascinating and and like like is very clear, it's so timely as well. Dr. Sarah Canham is an associate professor in both the College of Social Work and the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah. If you found this work interesting, you can find out more by visiting www.cap.utah.edu. And I'd like to thank by uh, end by thanking our listeners for taking the time to join us and for spreading the word using the hashtag Changing Places. On behalf of the Changing Places podcast, hosted by the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah, I am Dean Keith Diaz-Moore. Take care, everyone. <music>